Welcome to episode 110 of Paper Talk, a series of podcast interviews featuring artists and professionals who are working in the fields of hand paper making and paper art. I'm Helen Hebert, and I run Helen Hebert Studio, a hand paper making studio in Colorado's Rocky Mountains, where I create artist books and installations. I also host the annual Red Cliff Paper Retreat and Paper Making Masterclasses here in the studio and I run a membership program called The Paper Year and teach online classes about paper, light, and books, too. Find out more at HelenHebertStudio.com. You can also find the show notes for this episode at HelenHebertStudio.com slash podcast. Today, I'm talking with Brian Queen, who has been making paper by hand for 30 years and utilizing a wide range of materials and techniques. His interests span the book arts, including hand paper making, bookbinding, and letterpress printing. As a craftsman and toolmaker, he explores how new technologies such as 3D printing, laser cutters, and CNC machines impact the book arts. Along with his brother, he owns and operates Sensalite Limited, a company that manufactures custom architectural lighting for offices, hotels, and restaurants. Enjoy our conversation! Well, Brian Queen, welcome to Paper Talk. Oh, thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to talking about your life with paper. And uh, tell me a little bit about uh, growing up and any creative activities. Well, I guess, you you know, if you ask about like kind of early influences, I guess Mm -hmm. my family and my father would be an early influencer. Um, uh, You know, I guess he's what we call today a maker. So that's just a term that's come about in the last 15 years with, I mean, you've probably heard about maker fairs and make magazine, that type of thing. But of course, yeah. there's always been makers. And my father was a maker. We just gave them a different name in those times. Right. And so when my father returned from uh, World War II, he built our very first house that we lived in. I should say that would be a bit before my time, I should say, because I'm the youngest of uh, five boys. Oh, wow. But but. Yeah, so he had a lot of experience with building, you know, like right from the foundation up, that type of thing. Um, and we were always building things at home. You may have seen uh, or seen uh, issues of the magazine Popular Mechanics. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the rough equivalent to today's Make Magazine. Right. So they always had these, you know, sometimes outlandish projects that you could try. I remember my father building a, you know, plywood speedboat or something like that. Um, right. But And you would help? Would yes. you help with these projects? Yeah. 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 yeah well, you know, uh, it's kind of cliche. It's because it's, you know, it's, it's a different generation, I guess. That generation, basically, you you watched and you learned by watching. It wasn't right. like, oh, today some are going to learn about this or how to <laughs> screw in a screw. You know, you sort of watched and you did it. And then, of course, if if I was doing something wrong, and my father would say, oh, this is the proper way to use a saw, that kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, we were always... Uh, building things. If we weren't doing things ourselves, we'd be, you know, helping, uh, let's say, other family members or friends build a garage or a reshingle a roof, uh, you know, something like that. So a lot of right. building. Right. And, but also, I would add that, you know, as a child, I was um, always curious about how things were made, how things were put together. So I took things apart and re- rebuilt things. And yeah. So those would be my early influences. Yeah, it's interesting what you said about learning by watching because yeah. <laughs> uh, my father also was um 
I don't know if I'd call him a maker, I guess. Uh, he he got Heath kits. Do you know what oh, those yeah. were? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. My brother's had Heath kits. Okay. Yeah, yeah. build a so, radio or yeah. stereo. Yeah, yeah. So he would build electronic things. And um, I guess, you know, I don't think he ever tried to engage me. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and I I didn't have an interest. But maybe if he had said something like, oh, uh, yeah, uh-huh. this is how this works. Because I have a fascination with how things works as, work as well. So, right. Yeah, interesting. Okay. And um, well, what was that like growing up with five brothers? I just have to get a little. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, yeah, the, it was tough on my mother. I would yeah. Say. yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, we were kind of rebel rousers, I guess you could say in the uh-huh. neighborhood. And uh-huh. <laughs> you know, our brother had a rock band. So there was always loud music and neighbors didn't like that. And uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if I was, you know, if I was busy, my mother was a homemaker, I guess you would say. And uh so if I was busy doing things, she was happy. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. And so then um, what about in school? Did you do any, were there sh- shop classes? And Yeah, or- yeah, for sure, of course. Yeah. And I, of uh-huh. course, I enjoyed shop for sure. Yeah. Uh, I could probably excelled in that. Um, and then probably in, seeing in Canada, we would have what we call junior high would be grades seven to nine. And so in grade nine, you would, you know, do tests to see what your interests were. And, you know, I did those tests and it was like, came back as, you know, landscape architect, I believe is what it was. Mm -hmm. Because all you could know what you want to do with the rest of your life when you're 15, but, (laughs) uh, you know, you got to start somewhere. And so, uh, but, uh, so you would, in grade nine, look at the courses you're going to take in high school to prepare for college. But I didn't really have the grades, the proper grades for engineering or architecture or anything like that, especially in math, which was kind of a requirement. Uh, so it was decided I would go to uh, a, a vocational school. Mm-hmm. So this is where you become, you know, an electrician, mechanic, something like that. Although the field that I went into was, uh, I guess you could roughly called the graphic arts. So in the first year, they divided the year into four segments. So you'd have a taste of each discipline, you know, before you decided to specialize. So one of them was uh, photography. So we learned how to use cameras, develop film. Of course, they had a a dark room. So we did, you know, black and white photography. Uh, Another was uh, graphic arts or graphic design properly. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, fonts, uh, layout of pages, that type of thing. Uh, the third was uh, printing. So if you wanted to go commercial printing. And so that's where, you know, we what we did was, you know, carve lino blocks and then hand, learn how to handset type. And mm-hmm. This is where I, you know, learned the California job case. And and uh, I mentioned that because of the connection today, because I do letterpress printing as a hobby. Mm-hmm. So as it turns out, I'm, you know, uh, using the same kind of, uh, you know, Van Cook proof press that I used in high school. Right. Um and then the third option was drafting. So, and while that might seem like uh, the least desirable of those four, um, I was interested. It was a, a graphic language that you know helped me understand how things were put together, how objects fit together, how machines work, you know, uh, how buildings are built. Uh, and and I it worked with me. It's the way my brain works, and uh, mm-hmm. and I excelled at it. So. So I specialized in, in drafting. Yeah. Oh, cool. So for the next three years. For the next three years. Yeah. 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 I went to a high school where there was a vocational, it was all together the, uh-huh. in the, the school, there was a vocational component. And I 
thought at that time I wanted to be an architect. So I took a drafting class, which oh, yes. was, ah. was great. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I've, I've used those techniques yeah. throughout the rest of my life. Every right, time I right. go to build something, if it's, you know, a paper making mold or a press or whatever, right. it all starts with a drawing. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So um, what happened when you graduated from high school? So then uh, we moved from Winnipeg to Calgary. Calgary is sort of on the east coast of the Rocky Mountains, you know, above Montana, for those of you who may not know where that is. Um, we, my brother and I, my next older brother and I, I guess we were entrepreneurial, I guess you could say, and mm -hmm. we wanted to work for ourselves. You know, we didn't want to work for a company. Uh, so we... Oh, we tried all kinds of things, you know, like we, well, at first we were buying and selling cars. So my job was to, you know, do any body work and repair rust and that type of thing and then paint the whole car. Meanwhile, my brother, I'd help him uh, pull the engine and completely rebuild the engine, put it back together. Other things we did was for a while, we tried to make fiberglass sailboats. Mm -hmm. um, but then eventually a, a friend of ours had bought some lighting, uh, you know, for their chandelier kind of thing that was wood and oak and glass for their for their dining room and they said hey that you know they're quite expensive i wonder if there's a business there and so my brother and i looked into that and then the three of us started a business uh manufacturing lighting and uh that eventually we shortly after we bought the third partner out uh but but we did that uh we've been doing that now for 42 years yeah so we were quite young i was probably uh I think like 21, something like that. And we started manufacturing light fixtures. You would see residential type light fixtures, which you sell to lighting stores. But of course you have to sell across Canada or North America, which means you have to hire salespeople, but sale, those salespeople are commission salespeople, which are businessmen in their own right. So here I'm, you know, 21 without any <laughs> business experience. And, you know, I don't know how to manage salespeople across Canada, that type of thing. Uh, so, it, you know, it was rough going for, quite a while. And then one day uh, a restaurant burned down in the city and the insurance company came to us and said, Hey, you know, they had these charred remains of these large chandeliers. Can you rebuild these? And so we rebuilt them and we didn't rebuild them. We made new ones to, yeah. to match the Yeah. And uh, we thought, Hey, this, this is a, you know, a completely different type of business here at the end, because with the other business, we, you know, you have inventory, you have sales with this, it was okay. We built this one product. We know if we made profit or not. And, so we like that. So we turned, shifted the business to uh, do only custom work, which is different in that we don't we don't start work until we have an order. Right. And also it was a big change because of the clients. So instead of selling to a lighting store, which went to a retail customer in the end, uh, in this case, uh, we, if we did a custom light fixture for a office foyer, let's say, uh, I would go and meet with architects and electrical engineers who what I would consider my clients and so not the end user, right? but they're the people that decide, you know, what goes into a building. And so I was much more comfortable sitting down with an architect and going over drawings and, and saying, okay, this is what we can build. And this is, we can't build this, which you exactly what you want, but we can do it this way. Let's discuss materials. Of course, the architects would have, you know, anything from a range from just a, a rough concept drawing to more developed drawings. And then we would come in and say, okay, this is what we can build. And then that work gets specified in the architectural drawings. And when it goes out to tender, they say, okay, Sense Light's manufacturing this figure, you know, fixture, phone them up, get pricing, that type of thing. So yeah, we've been doing that for uh, now 42 years. Right, right. And the company is Sense Light. Sense Light Limited, yeah. yeah. And, and 
as far as the drafting, of, of course, mm-hmm. with a custom fixture, it's brand new, so you don't have photographs or anything. So I have to create shop, what are called shop drawings, and that goes up through the chain of command up to the architect, and everyone says, okay, they, they sign off on it. Yeah, okay, that's you know, all the details, everything, they look it over. All right, build it, that kind of thing. So yeah, I use I use those skills all the time. Right, right. And I remember uh, going to a conference in Canada and seeing some of your lighting fixtures in uh, Lake Louise somewhere. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At what was the venue? That's uh, Shadow Lake Louise. So okay. this is a series of hotels by CP Hotels built, you know, 100 years ago kind of thing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when the railroad ran across Canada. And so we did a number of uh, two or three or four CP Hotels right here in Calgary, everything from crystal chandeliers, large crystal chandeliers. But in this case, the Shadow Lake Louise, it was like kind of a medieval kind of light fixture. And it was 10 feet, in, a chandelier 10 feet in diameter and 30 feet tall, tall and you know, weighed a ton or something like that. Right. So yeah, quite quite a broad range. I mean, and over the years, I mean, most of the work we deal, I guess you could, work we've done, I guess you could describe as light steel fabrication. Uh, but we just worked in so many different fields. For instance, for many years, we slumped glass because we wanted to make our own glass lenses. Wow. Of course, we can't afford, you know, to go out and buy a kiln. So we have to build our own kiln and then learn everything from scratch. And other times, so other jobs we had where the architect wanted us to duplicate a porcelain fittings, you know, like you would from 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. So we searched for the original molds and of course they were long gone. And so then we uh, created our own, you know, on a, on a pottery wheel and, and developed white glazes and, and, uh, yeah, did the whole thing from one into the other. So, wow. And do you and your brother both do all aspects, or do you kind of does he do no, we, more the business side? Or? Well, yeah, I know we have it roughly divided. So, uh-huh. so of course, I do the drawings. Yeah, and I guess I'm the salesperson, although I don't okay. consider myself sales. But um, so then I would see the architects and engineers and visit them, and uh, and then the clients come down to our place to check out progress. But then, and then my brother would look after more of the manufacturing, although we both did it. You mm-hmm. know. But then as we grew a bit, you know, we've always been a small company, but, you know, we usually had, you know, anywhere from two to five employees. Mm-hmm. Um, so he would certainly look after the manufacturing side and and then do the bookkeeping. So mm-hmm. we kind of try to divide it. Yeah. Right, right, right. Cool. <laughs> okay. Um, so how did you discover paper making? I think it was through calligraphy. So tell me how you got into calligraphy first. Yeah, uh, I guess as a teenager, I had an interest in calligraphy, so I practiced it for a while. And then, I don't know, I was something like 20 years old, and I uh, heard the opportunity to teach uh, for what was called leisure learning, which is like a evening course for the city of Calgary. Uh-huh. And uh, and I didn't have a lot of experience, actually, in calligraphy, but I, I did teach for a while. And uh, But then I was interested in making my own handmade paper to do calligraphy on, mm-hmm. except... Uh, what I didn't realize at the time was, you know, what I was looking at was vellum or, you know, calf skin or animal skin. And I thought, well, of course, as calligraphers, you know, you can buy what's called parchment and it's made from paper, but it's, but, uh, so then I, yeah, I got Dart Hunter's book, of course. And, you know, and this is, would be, you know, uh, 1993, something like that. Mm-hmm. And there weren't a lot of books at that time around actually, you know, probably right. three or four. And, uh, so I read, Art Hunter's book and, uh, you know, followed the usual route, you know, uh, a blender and make my own mold, you know, out of a window screen, that kind of thing. 
uh, wasn't terribly happy with the quality of the paper. Of course, you know, when you start out like that, you know, with minimal materials and experience. Uh, and then I got in touch with um, the Alberta College of Art and Design, which has a new name today. It's a university. I, I always forget what it's called. But uh, an instructor there, and they had a, a fiber arts department, mm. and which included paper making. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, they were just buying a uh, Rena beater because they had a Valley beater, but they, they felt that wasn't, uh, it didn't work as well with them for students. Mm. And so, but they didn't have a paper making press. So I built them a, you know, a large steel hydraulic press in exchange for their Valley beater. And How did you come up with the design for that press? I just looked at, saw other ones, you know? Okay. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. know, like yeah, Lee McDonald, you know, like the structure of a hydraulic press, you know, that you can buy hydraulic presses today, you know, the structure is, is pretty straightforward. Right. But mm-hmm. uh, but definitely looked at, you know, ones made by Lee McDonald or, mm-hmm. you know, other paper makers. Right. And uh, so it was like a, I forget what it is, 20 ton press, something like that. So I think I got the better end of that deal because the Valley Beater <laughs> is probably more value than, you know, than a press. Uh, but then I started to work with that and uh, it wasn't working very well. I, it, I couldn't get the paper that I wanted and, and I couldn't understand why. And um, then I heard about the Friends of Dart Hunter. And so I got in touch uh, with them and then on the phone and actually who I talked to was uh, Marilyn Swart. Oh. So she, you know, who passed away yeah, probably 10, yeah. 15 years ago of cancer. Yeah. yeah. But she was a really, uh, I don't know, almost like a motivational speaker, a real go-getter. So she's saying, <laughs> you know, uh, you got to come to one of these conferences, you know, and I'm like, ah, I'm not sure, you know, and, and finally said, no, you, you just make it happen, you know, just uh-huh. do it and you won't regret it, you know? Right. So then, <laughs> She was right, and I attended uh, my first Friends of Dunhunter conference in uh, October 1995, which is uh, in Austin, Texas, and I was completely blown away, right? Uh, this is what most people experience the first time at a papermaking conference. I mean, yeah. first of all, to be in a room with 150 other papermakers, right? <laughs> and you don't have to explain why you make paper, and, right. and then all the ideas. Oh my goodness. You come back. I want to try that. I want to try that. And so, you know, I highly recommend that. And for anyone who's learning papermaking to go to one of these conferences and I've uh, attended every conference actually since. Uh, So in this fall in Rhode Island will be my 29th consecutive conference. And and then over the years, I, uh, for a couple of, for four years, I was VP of annual meetings uh, for the friends and uh, you know, which we now is a, uh, North American hand paper makers, of course. Right, right. And, uh, but I did the conference in Atlanta and Aeromont, and then we had regional conferences. And then the last one was uh, in Cleveland in uh, 2012, which was the uh, a joint conference between IAPMA and Friends of Dart Hunter. And then over the years, I've, you know, attended, uh, you know, also IAPMA conferences over the years. Yeah. Right. The International Association the Inter- of Paper right, Makers right. and paper, yeah. paper Artists. I yeah, never finished. And I- Oh, sorry. Well, I'll was, add that just going to one of these conferences, you also get to meet people that you've read about and heard about. And that's super absolutely. inspiring as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, lifetime friends like yourself and you yeah. know, other paper makers for sure. Yeah. I was going to finish off the story with uh, my beater. As it turns out, yeah. uh, there's a couple of bolts on the beater that you use when you do a grinding in procedure. And I thought that there's no way that the roll should ever con- come in contact with a bed plate. So I adjusted those bolts. Oh. So there's always a gap, right? Uh-huh. So all it was, it wasn't beating at all. It was just a giant blender. Right. And, and then, then I learned, okay. No yeah. Yeah. It wasn't working. Yeah. <laughs> 
That's interesting because yeah, when I have people come to my studio, I don't have a separate beater room, which is too bad, but uh-huh. I always start the beater and have them listen to how I bring the roll down and how it engages. And they're always surprised. Is that okay? Like it sounds like yeah. it's going to break or something. Yeah. Yeah. The loud sound is yeah. quite loud. It can't yeah. be, especially yeah. at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay. Um, tell me a little bit just briefly about your papermaking studio. Um, you know, I have a pretty standard studio. I, I have the Valley Beater, of course, and and all the different, you know, like a, obviously large presses and, uh, f- uh, and a good supply of commercial felts. Um, and then, you know, a dryer box, of course, and, and my SP15 Vandercook. And and then also these new technologies, which I have an interest in, right? Which is a laser cutter and three um, D printer, CNC machine. But it's 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 just actually my double garage. So when we built it, when we moved here, you know, part of the deal for me was you know have a double garage built and it's completely finished inside and it's never seen a car kind of thing. <laughs> right. But um, unfortunately, I don't have water any in there, so that's more of a problem in in the winter in the summer i can hook up my hose and i'm I'm great but uh in the winter i gotta carry in pails of water (laughs) right yeah we there's always something um yeah yeah, and i oh is there any uh do you have to keep the wet separate from the dry do you do anything for your machinery so it doesn't it's all together and you're right there's Uh issues like if i know i'm going to be doing a lot of paper making they're splashing i'll just put poly over, you know, cover with plastic over my press and that type of thing, you know? Yeah. So no, I don't really have a separate. And and you're right. The same thing with the noise is an issue, especially, you know, as I teach, uh, you know, it's hard to get that running and then be talking over the loud. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, And uh, well, we were talking about the friends of Dart Hunter, North American hand paper makers. You have created keepsakes, amazing keepsakes over oh, the yes. years. And um, we were corresponding a little bit and you you just made it sound like everyone did it. Like I never made a keepsake, oh, maybe right? once. Oh, okay. <laughs> because it, I was daunted by having to make 150 or 200. Oh, okay, um, yeah. But you make these elaborate ones every year, right? right? Yeah, well, <laughs> it's sort of, I mean, you know, yeah, you make one project that's, kind of elaborate and then the next year you know how do you beat that and so that's right. kind of okay. that's not sustainable right. <laughs> to every year get bigger but yeah over the years I've uh well I started out making just the standard sheets with whatever right. I paper I'd be making at the time whether it was you know cattail paper or flax and mm-hmm. then that kind of evolved into when I started doing letterpress printing uh I would create a broadside mm-hmm. but then then other years like I think uh, one year I made a a, a paper hot air balloon kit mm-hmm. uh, that you could assemble and fly yourself. Uh, I know you were interested in balloons, you know, at, at around that same time, I think. Well, you inspired yeah. me. Yes. Oh. But I didn't really, I must not have gone to the conference where you had the kit because I huh. remember reading about it in hand paper making and I was on my way to teach at Penland and I thought, oh, this would be a great project to do as a group, you know, oh, not yes, just yes. by yourself because it's right. a large hot air balloon. And so we got all the materials and followed your instructions. And yeah, I oh, love cool. I love the yeah. the pattern making and everything to, right. to make voluminous forms. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 I've seen that yeah in your work over the years for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um other things I've made, well, a number of uh 
small miniature paper making molds over the years, right? I think the last one I did was well, actually for the Philadelphia conference. Uh, when was that? Before COVID, twenty thirteen? No, <laughs> uh, twenty nineteen, probably twenty nineteen rather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that was a three D printed paper making mold with a brass screen, and uh, I call them matchbox molds because it, I put it in a, like a little matchbox, and the cover is uh, letterpress printed. But um, probably my biggest, yeah, most complex one was a watermark in a box. And I made that for the APMA Congress in Fabriano in 20, was it 2014? Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a little box with, a, you know, um, well, I made for the paper making mold, if you want to call that, was sort of like tin can paper making. So it was just a plastic, round plastic bottle with a lid, which I cut a hole in the lid and cut a hole in the bottom. And when you unscrew the lid, you can put a piece of uh, a round screen in there and turn it and it makes a little deckle box, I guess you could call it. Mm -hmm. And so it had that. And then one of the screens was uh, a chiaroscuro watermark, so an embossed watermark. Another was a plain screen, but I included brass wire so you could bend your own wire to make your own watermark. And then I had a, a 3D printed watermark too. And then a bit of pulp and a little bottle and a little mixing <laughs> wand. And then uh, a little press that was, you know, included felts and dryer, sort of like a flower press right. that you put together with, uh, you know, tighten with Velcro. And so it all slid together in, in, in a neat little box. And yeah, and I really enjoyed doing that type of thing, making kits. And of course, it's manufacturing. It's, right. you can see a theme here, so, you know, yeah, what I do yeah, at work yeah. and, and what I do in, yeah. in my spare time. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll put a picture of this little okay. kit in the show notes. And it's probably like... A two and a half by two and a half by four inch box. It's pretty yeah. small. Yeah, 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 it was pretty compact. Compact. And the yeah. um, yeah, to go to the detail, you go to such detail with <laughs> like the mixing wand. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah a little little great. round disc with holes in it. That's the way yeah. they used to have. You know, in in European mills, the the wooden version of a you know stick, and you you mix the pulp. Right. That. You mix the right. vat. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, you have. You've taken a deep dive over the years into watermarks, and I want to talk about that also in conjunction with uh, the advancements in technology that just allow sure. you to take old techniques and do them a little quicker or right. perfect on them. So right. um, when did you get interested in watermarks? Do you remember the first watermark you saw? And Well, I think that, of course, you know, when I first started paper making and I made my own uh paper making molds, laid molds, mm -hmm. then then I uh decided on a name which was Castle Paper and Press. Mm -hmm. And um and so I made my own watermark, which is kind of a little castle. And uh so that was kind of my first experience, soldering together pieces of brass wire uh, to make a line watermark. But then I was kind of interested in in, in moving forward and if the next step for me was to make what what are called dark watermarks. And that's simply where the embossed wove surface is uh, embossed, you know, over a form, in this case, you know, laser cut steel, but all to one depth. So mm -hmm. then you get, you know, your image is now darker, not lighter, right? And I'm sure all our listeners will know, or maybe I should mention that, you know, the principle of a watermark is if you put a piece of wire on a, the surface of your, your mold surface, uh, when the paper drains on it, the pulp is a little thinner in that area because it has to go over that watermark. And when it's dried, it's more or less imperceptible until you backlight it. And I think this is part of what interests me. I mean, their inherent beauty, uh, especially light and shade watermarks. Um, and then it's hidden until it's revealed, right, by light. Right, 
Yeah. Uh, and but, so the, so so let's just break that down. So yep. okay, so the wire is just a line, a line image that you make and wire, solder the pieces together. And then did you actually solder that to your mold as well? No, I, I sew it. You sew it, it so you yeah. could remove it. You could yeah. remove it. Yeah. And I have done that over the years uh -huh. when I didn't want it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's sort of the most basic. That's the starting level. And that can be sewn to, you know, a laid surface or a wove surface either right. way. Right. right. But right. the dark watermark, you cannot do on a late surface so it's a wove surface which is typically well for most you know 40 mesh you know mm -hmm. 40 openings per inch kind of thing mm -hmm. and uh first it has to be annealed which means you have to soften the metal because the, the metal can't stretch but uh if you heat it up to a certain temperature where it glows red and let it cool you're realigning the you know the crystalline structure or structure of the atoms or whatever so that it's soft kind of like butter and then when you emboss it or press it between a male and female dye it uh, it hardens again which is called work hardening and uh, that makes it stiff again so that's kind of the process so i made a number of dark watermarks you know friends of dart hunter logo you know uh, millennium i think watermark of, of the globe but then i became interested in the 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 pinnacle i guess of watermarks which is light and shade watermark oh god you had a question before yeah. So just for, you mentioned this briefly, but I want to reiterate that. So the dark watermark is just one thickness that you're embossing. So yeah, they, I guess if you call it dark, dark watermark. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it's all one thickness, whatever your image is, you know, is typically right. one thickness. Yeah. And what's the, um, the positive that you're embossing? What's the material steel? So okay. yeah, in this case, uh, the ones I did, I had laser cut steel about an eighth mm -hmm. of an inch thick. And, okay. and when you annealed it and bossed it, it didn't really go down a full eighth. So it was maybe 0.1 inch of a deep, you know, one inch, 0.1 mm -hmm. inch deep, something like that. And that's plenty. You probably don't even need that much. And when you make that watermark, it goes dark, which is, you know, a different look than a, a line watermark, which is lighter than the surrounding sheet. This is all darker right, because than more pulp is right. going into the debossed area. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. What, what did anyone ever do the reverse where the the screen was yep. up instead of yes. down? You can do yes. it both ways. You can make sure you can do both, both ways. ways. Yeah, no, it's good. You pointed that out because yeah. I didn't I've forgotten that when I did a Friends of Dart Hunter watermark, I did that very thing. So I uh -huh. I made sort of a chain link pattern, which is like a security pattern, which I probably shouldn't use from some security paper, but <laughs> I made that sort of a chain link pattern. But in the middle, I put, you know, uh, Friends, of Dart Hunter, Friends of Dart Hunter, the initials, um, FDH. And I just simply, with the laser cut letters, I simply flipped the screen over and now those areas were erased. So yeah, so you have the common ground i guess which is most right. of the sheet then you get a darker area and then you get a lighter area if it's raised okay so that's yeah. a combination yeah it's a combination so that's you true. could yeah. do one or the other or together which is really cool right, um, right we'll put some photos in the show notes too for sure. those of you that need a yeah. visual because this is kind of abstract but hopefully people are listening who understand watermarks too right um, yeah yeah, I I love it. I love it. Okay, so then the pinnacle you were getting to. Oh, it is light and shade watermarks. And you see these in the finest, of course, are made in Fabriano. And um, I uh, read online about a new technique of, of machining a dye from an image. Uh, I, I don't know if I, I don't want to get too much into it, because again, it's really something that's hard to explain 
right. uh, using words only. And yeah. I'm a visual person, so I kind of kind of see it. But I mean, I mean, you understand the basic principle. We talked about where more pulp or less pulp collects depending on the screen. Well, in this case, the screen is undulating. Everything. It's not a, a particular depth, higher or lower. It's the entire range. So right. some areas go quite deep and more pulp will collect there. So in the final image, those areas will be darker. And then some areas rise above the surrounding screen. And the result is those areas are lighter than the surrounding, but you get continuous tone you know, from light to dark. And that's the, the key difference with the light and shade watermark. Uh, but it's it's fairly complex, you know. Traditionally, it was made by you know you got to make a die, and so how do you make that die? And well, traditionally, it was done by you know a, a piece of wax that was backlit, you know, maybe a quarter of an inch thick. Sometimes it had color in it, and uh, an engraving artist carves away the wax, and and then an image you know comes up, and it's basically a uh, you know more or less what the watermark is going to look like, of course. And from that wax pattern, and I won't go into detail of all of it, but from that wax pattern, a male and female dye is created. And then the screen is annealed again to soften it. Then it's put between a male and female dye, pressed. And then when you take that screen out, that wove screen out, now you have to put it on a mold. But because it has areas that are lower, you have to alter the ribs on, on your mold to, to take the lower areas. So it's quite a mm -hmm. complex process. And this, mm -hmm. this whole thing from the beginning, the end to end is, is really complex and expensive, you know, no matter how you do it, the dyes, everything's it's, you know, thousands of dollars up to tens of thousands of dollars. And so it's, it's a difficult thing to do. And, and, and what, when I started to look at this, uh, I found online a method where people were going straight from the image using a program to machine the brass dies from that image. So in other words, instead of hand carving the wax, uh, a computer program created the three-dimensional shape and then something called a CNC machine, which is basically uh, something that machines brass or steel, uh, it creates that undulating surface, both the male and female die. And so um, that technology was available in my city and uh, I got in touch with someone and 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 that could do it and they machined uh one half of a die for uh an image of dart hunter so that was the first light and shade watermark i did and uh and you know i was pretty green learning from scratch that type of thing so that so that's sort of using some new technology already so you're right. kind of halfway there right um, and let's just mention that yeah. if anyone happens to go to fabriano italy Right. You can visit the museum there, the paper museum, and see the old ways. Um, yes. Uh, not someone doing it, but uh, I think you can see at least photos of the wax tablets and yeah, yes. oh, all of the different parts. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So if you yeah. go to the Watermark Museum in Fabriano, yes, they, the museum part has uh, all these wax engravings. So you, you walk mm -hmm. by and you see a very clear image. So the wax engravings, and they'll have the, the mold. The paper making mold and typically if they're doing demonstrations they'll often do a demo on a, on a light and shade watermark right. um so you can yeah. see the paper too yeah you can see the paper well and then you get to see you know immediately when it's cooch too you know, that's when you really see it it's like whoa you know like it's three-dimensional because the pulp isn't being pressed yet flat right you, you really see it and you see that to a certain extent with a line watermark but but really with a light and shade watermark yeah it's quite pronounced yeah, yeah, that's a good point that you really see it right when it's freshly cooched. You can see the dimensional, but when it's pressed, it's all it's flat. 
it's um, flat at least. Yeah, it's still. But it's you know, thinner and, it, and thicker. It's thinner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you had the right tools, you know, measuring tools, which paper make some, you know, I have, you know, you go in and you measure the thickness. No, oh, yeah, it's really thin here yeah. and over here thicker, you know, yeah, but it's yeah. visually, it's pretty flat. <laughs> right, right. This episode of Paper Talk is sponsored by the Redcliffe Paper Retreat an annual retreat held at Helen Hebert's studio in the heart of the Rocky Mountains of Colorado in late August. Enjoy a peaceful, creative week in the tiny hamlet of Redcliffe, surrounded by mountains, the river, and aspen trees. Experiment with several techniques as you create a variety of paper objects that will intrigue your eyes and illuminate your spirit. All levels of art experience are invited. The 2023 retreat theme is Paper Panels. Come explore a variety of papers that can be made by hand, cut, folded, stitched, and assembled in a variety of ways to create books, wall hangings, sculpture, lighting, and more. Explore these ideas as you create unique paper objects with a dozen like-minded creatives. Find out more at helenhebertstudio.com backslash red-cliff-paper-retreat. Let's talk a little bit about watermarking pulp because that's a whole nother issue. Okay. Like you sure. can't just make a watermark. I've trained people to make watermarks and then right. they, they just give up because it is tricky. Cooching right. and getting the pulp beaten correctly. Right. So uh, just talk a little bit about what you've sure. learned over the years. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, and you're absolutely right. All, all, all things, it's tr- it's tricky and uh, learning your Hollander beater and every Hollander beater is different. And mm-hmm. But basically, if you think of the, the major kind of overarching principle that you would have to understand is with any watermark, whether it's a line watermark or a light and shade watermark, the key is that the fiber is short. It's simply that. So what happens is if you think if you have a line watermark and you have two wires and they're kind of close together, well, if your fibers are a bit longer, they may bridge over the top of those two wires, right? But if your fiber is quite short, that little gap in between the two wires, the pulp's going to drop in that gap and make a crisper watermark. So that's really, you know, most of it in a nutshell. But then how do you achieve that? And, um, And that... I do that by simply adding more weight. In this case, a valley beater, you know, you add, you have this lever arm and you add weight to it. And so typically you might add, I forget what it is, five kilograms, and I'll add 10 to 15 kilograms. So that's a huge amount of pressure on the cotton. And here I'm using cotton pulp. Okay. So first or second. Oh, first or second. Sorry. Cotton linters. Yeah, mm-hmm. I would typically use linters. cotton linters. Mm-hmm. You know, rag is, is great in, in a traditional way and stronger and everything. But uh, when you're doing, especially like shade watermarks, yeah, it's just an extra dimension you don't really need. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because with watermarks, you're not after strength. And that's one of the side effects of a shorter fiber, of course. Right. Shorter fiber means the folding endurance is less, the tear strength is less. Right. But, you know, it's a presentation piece conceivably. Uh, I mean, if you're letterpress printing on it, then you don't, you don't beat it as short, right? right? So with a Hollander beater, there's two things happening. There's the bruising action, fibrillation, and there's cutting. So both things happen naturally. It's more bruising than cutting. Mm-hmm. By adding more weight to my lever, I'm adding the pressure right from the beginning. I'm increasing the cutting action, okay? Because the enemy of a good crisp watermark, at least the type of watermarks I'm doing, is a slow-draining pulp. So if it's draining too slow, the clarity won't be there. 
Mm-hmm. It's, it's not a pulp that strains extremely fast. It's just, you know, kind of like a standard text weight, text weight cotton sheet kind of thing, a standard thing. I don't know how many seconds that is, but, you know, a few seconds. Yeah. If you have, if you've beaten the pulp where to the point where, you know, it's taking, you know, 30 seconds a minute to dry. Yeah. The, the watermark's not going to be as clear. Right. So, um, yeah. So that's how I, 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 how I beat my, yeah, to get the sheet. You can also just start off with a shorter pulp. You know, sometimes you can buy shorter pulps. But, you know, these are not hard and fast rules. I mean, as right. artists, we, we break those yeah. rules all the time because yeah. you like working with Abaca and, and when you beat it a long time and it's translucent, then it takes forever to drain, you know, and right. it still creates a watermark. I'm talking more about the, the, the commercial and almost like, you know, banknote manufacturers, you know, when they want to make a crisp watermark on a, on a banknote, that kind of thing. Right. Um, yeah. But, but you know, you mentioned Abaca and the translucency of the Abaca does compete with the translucency of the watermark. I definitely think uh, cotton or there's now a, a flax, a sheet pulp flax yes. that's white uh, gives you a better image because it's more opaque. So you, yeah. you have that contrast between the watermark and the pulp. Whereas Correct. Abaca, exactly. I find that you don't see it as well. Yeah. No, yeah. No, you're exactly right. And that is because, as you say, the contrast is less. Mm-hmm. In fact, when I make my light and shade watermarks, I uh, also add calcium carbonate and titanium dioxide. And, you know, initially when you say that, it's like, oh, well, that's going to make the paper more opaque. Well, I, uh, it's a watermark. I don't want to do that. But when you think about it, what's important in a, a watermark um, is, especially in light and shade again, is the uh, difference between the darkest and the lightest color. So what's happening is if I'm adding titanium dioxide and calcium carbonate, yes, the paper is becomes more opaque, but it's not, it, it's not opaque. It's never opaque. You can always backlight it. So, but by making it, uh, you know, mm-hmm. more, more dense, yeah. then the contrast between the lightest and the darkest increases. Yeah. 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 So yeah. those additives, yeah. And that's mm. typically, that's done in Fabriano. I know when I had some Fabriano, a friend of mine did some tests on some Fabriano watermarks and they had a lot of fillers in it. And that's typical because the filler, also the filler is, uh, what we call fillers, uh, are, are you, know, uh, you know, earth materials. And they're actually much finer in size, the platelets, than, than even and the fibers. Yeah. And sort of the, it kind of settles in between and makes the sheet denser. Right. I, I use ca- calcium carbonate in my translucent abaca. And I, yeah, I sometimes wonder, am I going to, is it going to look, I don't know. Now that I'm thinking about it, maybe it does make a difference. I should actually do a conscious test between right. using it and not using it. Yeah. I have to say, I think it doesn't make a difference, but I see. sometimes the abaca is a little cloudier and maybe that's right. why. <laughs> but I, you know, I'll add, you know, I've seeing the work that you do in Abaca and the work's beautiful and you put it against a darker color and the sheet and everything. So it is achieving its purpose, what yeah. you want it to do. It's yeah. not, you know, technically, but you know, for artistic reasons, it, it works well, I think. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. So um, let's talk about your, your mold making. Sure. Sure. 3d printing and CNC right. you mentioned. And... Right. Well, I began mold making with the traditional mahogany yeah. and, 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 but you know, the laid surface, of course, I didn't have a loom. So I would buy that from a mill or someone who made that, you know, of course, Tim Moore made those laid surfaces for paper makers for many years. But um, uh, yeah, I, 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 you know, did the joinery, did, did all the work again, you know, work from Dart Hunter, but also 
Tim Moore had an article in hand, Paper Making Magazine, you know, whatever it's 25 years ago, 30 years ago. And I, and I must have read that, you know, a hundred <laughs> times, you know, and uh -huh. analyzed every drawing and made my own drawings from it. And so, yeah, that's where I started. But then probably 15 years ago, um, you know, there was the advent of uh, hobbyist 3D printers. Mm -hmm. And so I was, I guess, an early adopter when some of the very first earliest printers came out and, you know, that's sort of similar to like the earliest computers kind of thing, you know? And when I got my kit from England, I built a 3d printer and it was, you know, very difficult to work with and, you know, made, you know, very difficult to get quality prints. Uh, but that was early technology. That was kind of what, what was expected. And of course they've come a long way, long way now. Uh, but um, the first thing I did was of course start printing watermarks, mm -hmm. not a whole mold or anything, but just a watermark, because you can understand if you have a very complex watermark, you have to bend all those wires. And if the wires are crossing each other, you have to stop it there and solder it. But with 3D printing, it 3D yeah. prints as one piece and the yeah. complexity doesn't matter. And the time, of course, it takes to print was whatever, one, two, three minutes, no matter how complex your watermark is. And so I started, yeah, that was the first thing I thought mm -hmm. it was perfect for a, a 3D printer. But then I started thinking, hey, you know, we could print uh, paper making mold too, the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And one of the things about these types of 3D printers, the most common one, which are called uh, FDM printers, uh, Fused Deposition Modeling, it's, the, it's an acronym, and is that the nozzle, uh, yeah, I'm trying to think here to explain. Basically, 3D printers are like, a, you think of a hot milk glue gun. Mm -hmm. Right, you pull the trigger, and the, and so that a mess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it works on the same principle. Of course, right. what it's extruding is a much finer line. Yeah, and it's plastic, and the principle is that it prints in layers, and that means that uh, it'll print the bottom layer first, and then the table drops, and then the then the three uh, D printer extrudes the next layer. It glues. It adheres to the layer that was just printed, and mm -hmm. that table keeps dropping, dropping, and that may drop, oh, you know, five hundred to a thousand times until your object is created, the finished product is printed. So, uh, the, but one of the downsides of these printers is that the the extrusion is not fine enough to create a wove surface. So you can't 3D print a wove surface, right. but you can print a laid surface. And that's great because, you know, laid, a lot of people like the laid surface. That's, mm -hmm. you know, they want that antique kind of look. And so, yeah, I started to print the entire mold. And then I realized, oh, I could break this into three parts. So I could print the mold frame with the ribs. Then I could print the laid surface with or without a watermark. So now, mm -hmm. instead of printing a watermark separately and gluing or sewing it onto the laid surface, I print the entire laid surface with the watermark integral one part, and then the decal separately. So, and then that laid surface is is fastened to the mold frame with screws. But then you can just unscrew that, flip yeah. it out. You want a plain low, plain uh, you know laid surface. You put that on. If you have a special project where you've made watermarks, then you can switch it out. So that's how that kind of developed. And uh, yeah, it works quite effectively. And and one of the advantages, you know, is that you get a decal, for instance, that has that curved surface. I don't know if you've ever made your own paper making molds. And when you make them, you start out to begin with simpler, you know, the wood's all flat and the water collects there and, and all the different things. So, you know, a, a proper made mold like uh, Tim Moore makes is, you know, a beautiful thing. And these 3D printed molds, of course, will never replace the beauty you know, right. of a mahogany mm -hmm. mold and the craftsmanship. But uh, it sort of duplicates all the qualities of that. So then a very nice decal and it fits the way you want it and it's a laid surface. And 
So yeah, I think there's a certain advantage for for students. Uh, yeah, and the fact that the plastic doesn't melt, uh, warp over time. Um, yeah, Brian sent me a beautiful small five by seven, something like that, maybe a little bigger. One of these three D printed molds, and I love the interchangeable watermark. He put my logo on one screen, but then I also have a plain screen. And years ago, I was making these Luminaria lanterns with watermarks. I remember. And I talked to Tim Moore about, isn't there a way you could make me a mold that I could interchange the screens? And he wasn't interested in that. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that's a whole nother thing he would have. He ran a business, you know. You right. To, but but you like figuring things like this out and doing smaller scale. So right now, right. now here it is. <laughs> I'm not making those anymore, but this is a really... It's great. It's got lots of potential. I love it. Just tell, talk a little bit about the cost of printing a 3D printed mold. Is it affordable? Well, it's certainly affordable. If you have your own 3D printer, you have a friend, yeah. right? right? Because, you know, the materials are pr pretty minimal, you know, uh, you know yeah. the mold that I sent you, which was a metric A5 sheet. You know, I don't know what the materials would be. Probably, uh, maybe probably... 30 40 dollars maybe even 50 i'd have to look at it yeah but uh but then there's the machine time right. so if you if you go and have it a company print it for you it's still you know going to be probably 200 dollars or you know i made some recently for the uh university of calgary and they um yeah and i charged 250 dollars for the a5 mold mm -hmm. and 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 i think that's kind of a barrier in a way because when I think of it, it's like, you know, why would I want to play, you know, that much for a plastic mold? You know, it's, it's plastic, you know, it's not the real thing, which, you know, which is true initially. But then if you think of it, well, it's going to be durable and it's exactly yeah. like another one, you know, and it, it's just, just the way it is. It, it costs a certain amount to, to make it. But, you know, so if you have your own and, and I've shared, you know, these files, I know uh, Dom Farns with that uh, Magnolia has put one of my molds online that you can download and 3D print yourself. And it's my intention to share all these. And if people mm -hmm. have questions, I should say now, you know, they're welcome to email me. You know, you'll have my email address and they can email me directly if they have questions. But uh, eventually, you know, I'm working on a website right now and the long-term goal is it'll be a you know, depository for all those files right. for different size molds. And, and also, you know, I've taken it further and printed, you know, decal boxes of various sizes. Mm -hmm. So you'll have a mold, it can have a regular decal, but you can take that regular decal off, stick on a, a, a decal box, you know, use an elastic band or whatever around the bottom. And so all those types of files, uh, yeah, all those types of things can be 3D printed. Right. And I will include, um, you mentioned the link to Magnolia. I'll include that link for the sure. download. And Brian also gave a talk at Kennesaw State University. It was a virtual lecture and he has a video uh, a link that I'll put in the show notes too, if you're interested in 3D printing. Yeah, um, no, that's good because, it, you know, like all the things we're talking about here, it's, it's explained and shown in drawings in more detail. So if, if you're interested yeah. in that type of thing, it's kind of technical, but uh, yeah, that's save a lot of time just to take a look at that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and I was just looking at that this morning and uh -huh. uh, talk a little bit about you're a member of a makerspace, and this has been really instrumental. In addition to having all these paper friends that you bounce ideas off of, you you get uh, you learn a lot and share ideas with people through your makerspace. 
Yeah, yeah. About 15 years ago, uh, in Makerspace, this is all that Maker Movement, uh, yeah. Makerspaces came up. And uh, so I was an early member. And and even though, you know, what I find the benefit most for me is is what I would call the brain trust. In other words, the amount of combined knowledge there. Because mm-hmm. a lot of the equipment that they have there, I have, you know, in my shop already. Right. Although they're actually every year is getting better and better. It's just quite an amazing space called Proto Space here in Calgary. And so, yeah, uh, you know, even though I'm interested in new technologies, uh, I don't have a lot of experience in electronics, you know, or computer programming, although I have done some programming. And so whenever I do a project that, you know, involves those areas, then I get help, you know. So, uh, yeah, it's a great space. So, and it's a social thing too. Uh, you know, I go to see the meet the people and friends. And... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, and you, I just was scrolling through and I stopped at this point randomly, but it was uh-huh. so fascinating. Um, you're interested in the papermaker shake. Right, and, right. <laughs> um, hooked up these lights to your mold so that you could see that it was level when pulling a sheet. Right, and right. I, that's just so cool. Yeah, and that's yeah. that's an example. Yeah, no, I can yeah. explain that. So that's an example, yeah, where I had help, had, had help from members of protospace and mm-hmm. so there were two different things there one was a papermaker shake and uh that arose you know with, with a lecture oh, right. from peter thomas right and you and, and when i would listen to his lecture and he, he would watch you know talk about the shake of these papermakers in england mm-hmm. and then he said but they're you know they will pass away and that knowledge is kind of lost and i thought i wonder if there's a way we could ever record that and and so there is a piece of electronics in, you know, our cell phones, you know, called an accelerometer, and it records motion and, and speed and all, all kinds of things. And so I had a friend help me make a, a little box of electronic parts, and I could just clip it onto a mold. And so when you dip the mold, it record, you know, how fast, you know, the direction of your shake, the force of the shake and everything like that. But it's kind of, it wasn't terribly useful because, you know, you could, export it into an Excel file and show a graph and that type of thing. But it's kind of hard to just look at that to know. So, you know, what was the actual shake like? So it's kind of limited value, but it is, you know, it sort of would record, you know, I guess you could say for posterity, you know, who knows, you know, and in the future, if we could use that motion, you know. Yeah. When I watched that, I was thinking about, um, I'm a swimmer and in college, uh you know, college was like years ago, I swam and, um, sometimes they would take videos of us right and then show them back to us so we could see what we were doing right um and this Same is one yeah. one step removed though because right. you're having to look on the screen i guess you could record your shake and compare it to someone else's and see maybe where the difference yeah is. yeah it's such i a, mean it's a short amount of time that you're shaking too so yeah. right right uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I had plans that, you know, because yeah. I have all, all kinds of ideas that never come to fruition. You know, I have more yeah. ideas than I have time. Right. But yeah, so that was one project. But the second one you talked about was, yeah, yeah I hooked it up. Uh, it created an electronic circuit that uh, lit up LEDs. So I put an LED on each of the four corners, okay, of the, of the decal now. Mm-hmm. And so when you create a sheet and when you lift it, uh, you want to lift it level you know, mm-hmm. at least at the end. And so to do that, I created this, uh, you know, the program was such that all the LEDs would go off when it's level. Mm-hmm. And so if you're off to one, just one corner, that one corner would light off, but light up. But if you, you know, let's say two sides, you were tilting the whole mold, then two lights will light up. Right. And so then you just keep, you know, uh, 
you know, controlling it, moving it back and forth till all the lights are out. So yeah, that was one way. And and I, it was kind of fun because I discovered myself that uh, I had a tendency to not lift it up level and I never uh-huh. really realized it. And, and it wasn't until I did a, you know, a run of a hundred sheets for a, a keepsake. And then uh, I looked at the stack and it was kind of tilted. And so all my sheets were slightly thicker. And, went, and it turned out, yeah, I'm tilting the mold a bit towards me, lifting the far end a bit too high. And so, uh, yeah, and so kind of a neat little thing. And uh, the idea is to be able to 3D print, in the end, to be able to 3D print the electronics internally so mm-hmm. that it can go directly mm-hmm. in the water without a problem. Uh, right now, I just use it to practice and sort of gain muscle memory, I guess you could say. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, yeah, that's, yeah, that was fun. That's cool. I could, I was thinking when I was watching that about <laughs> a torture device, like instead of lights, that it would be like some kind of shock. Ch- oh, yeah. Get, and like students of paper making having to do it exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> some kind of haptic feedback. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. The, the other part of the project is that it all looks up to uh, uh, my iPhone. So uh-huh. I can go in and change all the settings. And so I can, you know, make right. it more sensitive to the point where the lights almost never go off. Right? Uh. They're always flashing because you can't get it level. <laughs> and yeah, so that's fun. Oh, cool. Oh, oh well, tell me what you're up to. Uh, right now, what kind of projects are you working on? Well, I, I, I guess to finish up on the watermarks, um, okay. uh, because we didn't talk about the the thing I've been working on recently, and okay. and it was uh, well, I mean, we, uh, the last issue of Hand Paper Making Magazine has an article about these light and shade watermarks that I'm 3D printing, and and so what happened was, you know, a few years ago, a, a new type of printer came out, and it I won't go into detail, but I will call it a resin printer, but it 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 uh, creates layers by turning ultraviolet light into uh, a photosensitive resin and hardening it. So still building up in layers, but that's not important. The main point is much higher resolution. So now all of a sudden, find enough resolution that I can print a 40 mesh wove screen. Mm. And as soon as that occurred, I thought, okay, can I make a light and shade watermark now, right? All at once in, in 3D printed. And so I guess it's probably, I can't remember, two, three years ago that I started doing that and experimenting. And and after probably 40 or 50 iterations, you know, I had some success to know, uh, you know, how to create that. And so now I guess the main difference, just to explain it simply between, you know, the traditional method with, you know, two brass dies and heating a screen and this method I'm doing is that when I'm doing it, I'm doing it all digitally. So it's all in the digital. So what that means is I create a 40 mesh uh, 3d model and and sides and a, you know actual whole mold with 40 mesh and then i use a program to create the undulating surface which creates a die so now i have a virtual die and that virtual die goes into the virtual mesh and is removed and leaves its impression on it and then i 3d print the entire mold so not just that that surface but you know the, the frame right. and everything and uh and create a light and shade watermark from it so now I'll say right away, you'll see if you happen to read the article, you know, the quality of the images, it's not comparable to Fabriano for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's moving in that direction. And, and and I just make, you know, as I continue work on it, incremental improvements. And I have my suspicions why it's not, you know, where improvements can be made. But yeah, was, that was, I found that really satisfying because I'd worked on watermarks and light and shade watermarks done it traditionally yeah. and to be able to 3d print it entirely. Right. Yeah. It was, it was pretty fulfilling in that. Uh, so I continued to work on that. 
That, uh, oh, that's amazing. I want to touch on, you said 40 to 50 iterations. Do you ever get frustrated and just like have to put something aside for a while or is it just motivating? Like, oh, no, I got to figure this out. <laughs> uh, no, no. When I, I, I do get frustrated sometimes for sure. Uh, uh-huh. and, and what I do is, because I probably have so many different projects going on at the same time is that I'll just shift and I'll yeah. just put that project away. Right. And it might be a month or it might be six months, mm-hmm. six months pass. And then when I come back to it, I'm kind of refreshed and I see it with fresh eyes. And oh, yeah. okay. Because, yeah. you know, when you're in the thick of it and you're frustrated, right. uh, it doesn't always help with the ideas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm similar. I have a similar approach. Love to hear right. that. Right. Okay. And I know you... You're doing. You're helping the University of Calgary set up a whole. Yeah. So, so the more recent things. um, Yeah, is uh, the University of Calgary and the English department, which I thought was interesting, not the art department. Uh Uh, The professor uh, who teaches, you know, history of the book, you know, rather than having her students all, you know, go to special collections and look at these old books and and talk about them, uh, she started a book arts lab, and that is where includes paper making, letterpress printing and uh, bookbinding. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, they had generous donors, you know, who helped fund and they bought a Vandercook SP15 press. And then I just finished building uh, a bunch of um, equipment for, you know, a, a nice little wet press and felts and dryer box and all that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, one day they they go out and they make paper outside. And then, you know, the next week they're uh, learning how to handset type and, and, you know, a sonnet or whatever. And then mm-hmm. they print on that and then they do some kind of simple bindings. Uh, so I've been working with them. Yeah. Helping that and helping them get that established. And, and the summer actually we're uh, growing uh, four plots of flax uh, to make paper from that flax and uh, helmet Becker, who you've heard of uh, mm-hmm. and a, a Canadian paper maker uh, did a lot of research with flax at the universe, Western university in London, Ontario and uh, I got in contact with him and and they have uh, like a field station. They have an agricultural component to the university. So uh, they had done research 10 years ago and with about 20 different varieties, so all fiber flax mm-hmm. and grew all these plots. And they had all these seeds still from 10 years ago. They did a germination test. And, oh, yeah, they're 95%. Sure, we can send you flax. So we we planted those a few months, a month ago or something. And now they're all sprouting. And this fall, we'll harvest them and Turn them into paper, turn it into paper. Oh, I hope that'll be documented because I know people will be interested in that. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. 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 No, uh, the professor has planned that. Um, uh-huh. Other projects. Well, I've got long term projects and that I need to complete. And maybe by saying it here, it'll help me force me to complete <laughs> it. But uh, Helmut Becker, probably in five years ago or more, said uh, he, Helmut Becker, first of all, uh, manufactured a Hollander beater about 25 years ago. And I can't remember how many sold 25, 30, something like okay. that. But he had this set of drawings and he asked, can you update these drawings? And, and, and so he gave me those. And so uh, I'm creating, I guess what you would say, a contemporary version of the hand drawn. I mean, these are pencil on paper drawings, but today we make, we don't uh, today in drafting, we don't um, draft 2d drawings. We make 3d models. Mm-hmm. And the computer program automatically gen- generates the 2D drawings. So you don't even create 2D drawings uh, anymore. Okay. You're creating a 3D model. And so I've done that and I've actually uh, created 3D models f- yeah, for the beater. And I've actually 3D printed full size a Hollander beater out of plastic uh, to, to, uh, of one of Helmut's uh, 
paper making, uh, I'm sorry, Hollander Peters. So, and his goal eventually is when they're complete that he would, uh, you know, give them freely to the public. And there's, there is no, that I know of, you know, set of drawings wow. to, to create your own Hollander beater that exists. What, um, um, what capacity does that beater have? The one that you 3D printed? One pound? Uh, smaller yeah it's like it's like a size of a reina beater okay yeah it's not large it's not small uh -huh. so i think it's a little bit bigger than a valley beater probably the the volume yeah but the 3d printed version i should say uh and i could send you a picture of that it's just yeah. to to see how it was built and put together for me to understand okay and it was working so, you know you turn the crank everything roll, uh -huh. goes up and down but it could never function as a, a beater right. like because it's made of plastic so it would right. last you know one minute right but um yeah, so that's a kind of, and I just am close to finishing those, and uh, and then what other? Well, I'm doing something similar actually with um, uh, Tim Moore. So Tim Moore, you know, when you make a laid surface, it's made on a loom, and so Tim developed and built many looms over the years. So he came up with this loom. You know, it was in, in hand paper making magazine. I can't remember how many years ago. Mm -hmm. And so we've been exchanging notes and everything. And I've been making, again, 3D models of this of this loom. Right. So those are kind of longer term projects. But again, I never have a shortage of projects. <laughs> right. And you've made so many wonderful contributions to the field, which you continue to do. Well, thank you. So, yes, yeah, several articles in hand paper making and. Um, Brian does not have his own website at this point, but as he said generously, I'll put your his email address in the show notes. And so if you follow through and want to find him, you can. Sure. Um, okay. And you had a couple of recommendations. So uh, Tim yes. Barrett's book. Right. Yeah. Tim Barrett's book. And I don't have in front of me what the title is. European, European Hand Papermaking Traditions, right. Tools, and Techniques. Yeah. Yes. And a, and it's just a, a great book because it's so comprehensive. I mean, it includes you know paper making techniques, of course, but also uh, you know equipment and what paper you know how to set up a paper making studio. And I think it's really it's it's going to become a classic. It's going to be yeah. like a textbook. Uh, you know, you build a, to refer to that book for decades. And and uh, so yeah, great book. Um, Which is um, by the way, he also has a Japanese paper making book right which, from many years ago, which is just as valuable for them. Oh yeah, for yeah. sure. That was yeah. yeah. Classic. What was my second one? And then oh, uh, Avalon, which Avalon. I actually, I've saw that as well at Don Farnsworth. So go ahead and talk about it. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, Don, Don, Don Farnsworth told me about those. And uh, this was because when I was making my uh, light and shade watermarks for, you know, hand paper making magazine, which I had to make, uh, I don't know, you know, in the end, when I did different publications, I made something like, uh, I can't remember what it was. I don't think it was, something like 2,500 samples, yeah. you know, all told. Right. And so, you know, that's a lot of paper. And uh, so when I cooch these light and shade watermarks, the fiber is extremely short. And so the traditional way is you cooch onto your felt, you press it, then you take it out of the press, you peel the damp sheets off. Now, it's because the fiber is so short, it's very easy to either stretch it or tear it. Right? Yes. And so lose the what, image. Yeah. yeah. And so with this Evalon material, it's a thin white cloth like material. Um, uh, and it's, it's made for many different reasons, but conservatives use it to wick moisture. So it absorbs, I forget what, four times its weight in water or something like that. So it, it sucks in water. And so what I do is on my felt, I put a layer of Evalon, and then I cooch onto that Evalon 
And then I uh, put another layer of Evalon on top and then felt, press it as usual. But then when it comes out of the press, instead of peeling it off the Evalon at that point, I just put the Evalon paper, Evalon sandwich directly into the dryer box. Now it takes a little bit longer to dry because now you're drying two sheets of Evalon too, in addition to the paper. But it's when it comes out, it's beautiful because when it's dry, it peels off and it kind of leaves its very, very fine pattern, but it's hard to even mm -hmm. see it. Mm -hmm. And the sheet's dead flat. And the great thing is you don't have to handle the sheet while it's fragile. Right. Yeah. And so every sheet's now perfect. So oh, wow, this is fantastic. I, I just love this. And and so, and now even I've started to do it with my regular sheets of paper. I mean, when I, even if I'm not finely beaten, I'm using cotton, it's like, oh, I love this finish. And I just do it for that reason. Well, and also if you're making sm multiple small sheets, I'm imagining you cooching more than one sheet on a piece of Evalon. Or do you no, have actually, it cut? turns out I cut the Evalon a little bit short, uh, smaller. Okay. So in other words, I have a very large, you know, whatever it is, a 24 by 30 sheet, sheet uh, you know, press and felt. Mm -hmm. But when I, because my dryer box isn't quite that large, I, you know, I make a little bit smaller sheets. So I have two or three on that giant felt. And so when right. I pull it out, there's only one sheet, you know, or two sheets in it. Okay. It fits easily in my dryer box. Got it. Well, there's yeah. so many ways to do production paper making. And uh, right. we're, when you do that, you're always trying to figure out ways to improve and save time. And right, um, I've done a lot of couching. I haven't invested in Evalon yet, but I need to because for yeah, you buy a roll and it's yeah. reasonably priced. It's okay. not that much more expensive than what's the other people? Pelon. Uh, Pelon. Pelon, yeah, right. Oh, and it's much better than Pelon, in my opinion, because yeah. Pelon, if you put some water on it, it beads there, right? It doesn't like water. It, but right. it, it works. It works as a press. But this is closer to a felt in a way because it's absorbing the water and it's got a nice finish. And yeah. Have you ever tried just stacking Evalon without felts? Because I know a lot of people do that with Pelon. They don't yeah. have felts. I'm yeah, I, I've never done that myself. Yeah. And, and the reason you may know why is because it the the Pelon or Evalon is so thin yeah. that you need to cooch those sheets right directly on top of each other. In other words, when you make the post, right. those felts, if you've got one, you know, one of the cooch sheets over to one side, it doesn't get pressed and right. it's kind of uneven. So that's yeah. why I don't do it. I have no doubt you could do it and people do it all the time. It's yeah. just that I've always had an abundance of felts. So uh, I never, yeah. Same here. People ask yeah. me that all the time, but I have yeah. felts, so I use them. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, cool. Okay, and then you also mentioned the immersion water heater. Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, yeah, I, I didn't realize that it would be such a benefit until I, I tried it. And, and it basically, it's a, a metal tube that's, I don't know, two inches in diameter and a foot long, and the ends are rounded and have plastic. But inside there, there's uh, the, the, the heating element, and it's sort of separated from the water so that, you know, if you put your hand in and touch that, you know, it might be hot, but it won't burn you or anything like that. But, um, so you drop it in and you your five gallon pail full of cold water and in like 10 minutes it's it's hot like hotter and and the one i use has a thermostat so uh you set the temperature you want and then when it drops in temperature it heats it up again so i'll have a pail let's say where i'm rinsing my hands or rinsing a mold or something like that i can just dip it in there and it's always hot now you know you can go over to your hot water tank you know your sink and get hot water out of there but consider that that hot water continues to cool down, right? It, it cools down, 
but here you, if you want continuous hot water and also because in the winter when i make paper right. outside i have to you know fill up my pails you know full of hot water and lug them out there which i still have to do with the cold water but the base the principle is that i have this infinite supply of hot water it just is always going to be hot yeah. yeah i love this i don't have hot water in my studio i only have cold oh okay right and so uh yeah in the winter it's freezing yeah. and i just have a kettle that i heat up and put uh right a pot of hot water in my vat but yeah i love learning about this never yeah yeah no that's it's it. it and and i think what the surprise was me was was how fast it could heat up a full pail five gallon pail and then you know i don't know if it's 10 minutes or it's a little, a little bit longer but yeah much faster than a kettle i would think yeah right and you are, have you ever put it in with the pulp in the vat or you always yeah. just do it in the water is there so, a reason not to put it with pulp yeah no that's a good question and the, and the short answer is i don't know for sure in other okay. words when i was making these uh paper making mold uh, sorry these light shade watermarks i was using a decal box and very for a very specific reason because the weight in a light and shade watermark is critical and right. you just get it a little thicker and all of a sudden it's not as clear. So mm -hmm. by using a decal box, I could pour in a measured amount of pulp every right. time and knew that it was right. going to be right. So yes, I put my, uh, in, uh, put that immersion heater, but it was in the vat of clear water. Right. So it right. didn't have pulp. So mm -hmm. now you ask, can you put it in with the pulp? And I think that you can, but the only thing I'm not certain of, and I have, I've done it. Yes. I've heated vats with pulp. I, the only thing I haven't done is to know what happens long-term because my only concern would be, does some of the pulp eventually burn and dry onto the element and build up and build up and then not work anymore. And so I don't know the yeah. answer to that question, but right. uh, it'd be worth exploring because that, that would be a huge boon. Right now all I do is heat the water. I pour that into the vat. Right. I pour the hot water in the vat, but yeah, it would be nice to have it in the vat. Um, uh, This just popped into my head. So we'll uh -huh. end with this. Do you have any, sure. um, any save your back techniques like lifting heavy buckets or what do you have setups in your studio that prevent yes. you from having to do heavy lifting? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it becomes more important as you get older. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, like I have a coaching table that's adjustable and I think uh -huh. I've even may have seen in your studio, the type where you, you have a hand crank and a hydraulic and you can put it up. That's yeah. great. That's a great solution because and today, you know, they used to be terribly expensive, but you can get relatively inexpensive oh, yeah. ones today. And that's great because, you know, if you're cooching, you could put the felts to where you want it. Mm -hmm. And I will typically uh, cooch on to a thick sheet of three-quarter three inch. It's sort of like cutting board, like a kitchen cutting board. Mm -hmm. And then I can raise my table to the height of my press. I can just slide it right in and I have to lift all that heavy right. felt. Slides out, comes out, same kind of thing. Um, you know, other little things, you know, I have little, uh, you know, uh, you put the five gallon pay pail on this little disc that has wheels on it. Right. So you can roll it around. Mm -hmm. So you're not lifting that as much. Um, you know, uh, yeah, that's all I can think of. I mean, I have a dryer rack, that type of thing often, but I don't dry paper in it. Most of the time I use a dryer rack and along the roof to dry my felts. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Wonderful. Well, what a treat to talk to you, Brian. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. It's been a lot of fun. Hey, paper friends. Did you know that I write a weekly blog called The Sunday Paper featuring stories of people doing exciting, innovative, and beautiful things with paper? Sign up at helenhebertstudio.com slash blog. I'm also creating a lot of content over here 
And the best way to stay up to date is to join my newsletter list to learn about free tutorials, online classes, workshops, and the annual Redcliffe Paper Retreat, which takes place right here at Helen Hebert's studio. You can find out more at HelenHebertStudio.com. This wraps up our episode, and if you enjoyed the show, I'd appreciate it if you could leave a review over on iTunes. This helps others find out about the podcast. Special thanks to Gary A. Hansen for the sound editing and Peter Thomas for the music. Visit HelenHebertStudio.com and click on Podcast, where you can find out more about these guys, subscribe to this series via iTunes, and listen to other episodes and access all of the archived shows. Talk to you soon. Besides the season, the